This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? Dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. My guest is Parker Palmer. He's a teacher, activist, community organizer, and author of numerous books, including The Promise of Paradox, Healing the Heart of Democracy, To Know as We Are Known, The Active Life, The Courage to Teach, A Hidden Wholeness, and he has a new book, On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and getting old. Welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. It's wonderful to have you on. Thank you. First Good to off. be with you. And I really love the book. Thank you. And I understand that today is publication day. It is, actually. You're, you're right on the button. Yeah, this, was, this is pub day. Yeah. So what's it like for you on Pub Day <laughs> for one of your books? <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's such a long journey to pull a book together and then to get it published that you kind of feel like all the heavy lifting has been done. And I suppose, uh, though I'll never know, that it's a little bit like giving birth and, and then raising a child and you've done your best to give it a good upbringing and now you let it loose on the world and it's all up to the kid. <laughs> and it's on its own now. It is, absolutely, and it's in the tender mercies of readers. Over the years, I dedicated the book in part to my longtime editor, who helped me and encouraged me to write it, and in part to my readers over the years, young, old, and in-between, who've really been a very encouraging and evocative audience for me. So this is my tenth book. 
you know, you get all kinds of responses to books. Some are very friendly, some are not so friendly. But um, you, the trick is to learn from all of them. And I, I really feel that I have learned a lot, not only from the people who instantly like the book, but from my critics as well. You've been publishing books for about 40 years now. Yeah, my first book was published in 1979-1980, so I guess that puts me close to, I guess, 40 years down the road. As I like to say, this is my 10th book. As you know, it's called On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and Getting Old, and as I've been saying for several months now, it took me 10 books to do it, but I finally found a subject I know something about. And... What are you, Getting what are you, old. <laughs> really, that's, that's very interesting because I would say that this book seems to be less about getting old and much more about the journey of being and, and becoming a, a real human being in this kind of wondrous, crazy world that we share together. Well, that's a lovely interpretation, and I, and I really appreciate it very much. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, part of the journey of getting old, as I say in the prelude to the book, is finding yourself on the brink of everything, as it were, this sort of uh, point where you can look back and you can look around and you can look ahead and you can see things from a new perspective. One of the things that really strikes me, Tonio, about looking back is how I can now see patterns in my life. I can connect dots in a way that I couldn't have when I was laying those dots down. My own path has been quite circuitous, and there were times when I had the same question my friends had, which was, what in heaven's name are you doing? <laughs> you know, not, not pursuing a linear career, but looking back, I can see that it, it was what Gandhi called experiments with truth. That was the title of his autobiography. And I kept experimenting to find something. I wasn't quite sure what, but looking back, I can see that pattern. And I think even more important, if I compare this life journey to a weaving, a tapestry of some sort, I can look back on threads that I put in that tapestry at one time that I wished I could withdraw, what Joseph Campbell calls the dark thread. And at the time, I wished I could pull that out. But looking back, I can see how everything belongs. It all fits together, the shadow and the light, and it all contributes to that sort of weave of resilience that, for me at least, life has become. I feel much more resilient these days than I did mid-career when I was still struggling to figure out who I was and what it was that I was meant to do, and I'm really very grateful for that resilience that I think in these times one needs it especially. And uh, just to jump ahead, to uh, we can come back to it any time you'd like, but you know, one of the things I write about in the book is the importance of intergenerational relationships, and I have spent a lot of time working with people half my age and less. And one of the things that I think elders owe the young is honesty about the dark threads, the, the failures, the mess-ups, the disappointments, the getting your wires crossed, that eventually becomes part of that stronger and even more beautiful weave because a lot of young people will walk, you know, will confront a failure and sort of feel like, well, this is the end of the road. 
And uh, I just don't think that's the case. So getting back to equating life with truth and those dark threads, our shadow aspects, I also think back upon some of the threads in my life, and I still cringe thinking about them. And then I, I wonder, why, why am I still cringing over that? It's something that happened many years ago, and why can't I just make peace with it? Well, the first thing I want to say about that is that you've just given us a wonderful example of the examined life, which Socrates, of course, highly recommended, <laughs> and so do I. In fact, there's a place in the book where I say, I'm old enough now to amend Socrates, who said the unexamined life is not worth living. My amendment is, if you choose to live an unexamined life, please do not take a job that involves other people, because you're going to do damage. That's always what happens with an unexamined and unconscious life. So I don't think there's any definitive answer to the question, why am I still chewing on this thing that happened many years ago, except maybe the answer is you have to live into that question, and you have to consciously explore that moment in your life to find out if it has anything more to teach you in the present moment. I do think that sometimes, you know, we have experiences which we are so ashamed of or regretful about or even afraid of that we don't want to walk right into them and learn what's there for us. As you may know, I, and I reference this at a couple of points in the book, I've written before about three deep dives into clinical depression. And anybody who's been there knows that that's a horrific place to be, and you don't want to recommend it to anyone as you know, a place to learn more about your life. But if you're there, and if you are one of the lucky ones who not only survives, but thrives in the wake of deep depression, um, then I think you one of the ways you make meaning of it is to examine it and its roots and its sources, not, not so much psychoanalytically as, as just in terms of, you know, the movements of your own heart, your own mind, and the integration or not of your whole self. You know, I think for me, and I think I'm not alone in this, one of the problems in my younger years was that I wanted only to present the bright and shiny side of myself to the world. And that way you live behind a wall. You wear a mask. You're, you're constantly afraid of being found out for the fraud that you really are. But when I was able finally to start writing about my depression and speaking about it in public settings, talks and workshops, it turned out to be enormously therapeutic for me for two reasons at least. One was I was being something closer to my whole self in the world. And, you know, I, at my age, which is approaches 80 in six months or so, um, I can't imagine a sadder way to die than to think I really never showed up in this world with my whole self. You know, I wasted 80 years hiding behind a wall and wearing a mask. So it's therapeutic in that respect to show up with this kind of notion that I am all of the above. I'm not only my gifts and my achievements, whatever they may be, but I am also my struggles and my darkness and my despair. That's intrinsically rewarding. But the second reason that it's therapeutic is that you're turning a very hard experience into something that can serve other people. You know, there's this notion of the wounded healer 
who is the man or woman who has a hard experience and then looks around and realizes, if I'm willing to go public with this, if I'm willing to say you can go to this dark and difficult place and not only survive it, but thrive in the wake of it, it's going to be helpful to others who are in that same place and who are ashamed to talk about it. I think this is especially true for men. Um, The best book I know on male depression is a book with the very insightful title, I Don't Want to Talk About It. And I I think that title is just bang on in terms of men who, who feel so ashamed of depression that they don't want to talk about it. Men of my age, for example, remember when George McGovern ran for president of the United States. He had a running mate named Thomas Eagleton. And when it was discovered that Thomas Eagleton had been treated for depression in a hospital, Thomas Eagleton had to drop off the ticket. And McGovern had to find another vice presidential candidate. Well, I frankly would rather have somebody who's been in really dark human places, which might breed a little compassion in them, than to have someone who's faking it. You know, I'm the smartest guy in the room. I'm total success and power and nothing more totally ignoring their shadow. And, you know, some people may recognize that description (laughs) of certain public figures today. So to me, this is a big topic, and, you know, I'm glad we're touching on it. I'm so glad that that you brought that up. I can so relate to all of that because I have experienced deep, dark depression, and most of the people I know have also experienced that at times in their lives. And it is hard to talk about because it's not one of those things that we're proud of, and it's certainly not the thing that we have been taught to present to the world. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it, you know, it, it takes time to work your way through to a place where you're ready to present it to the world. My own story on that, for whatever it's worth, is that it took me 10 years after my first major depression to feel ready to write about it and speak about it publicly. And when I say speak about it publicly, I'm talking about large audiences or workshops and so forth. And I think the reason for that became clear to me in retrospect, which is that it took 10 years for me to fully integrate the experience of depression into my sense of self. At first, I just wanted to forget about it. I wanted to get it behind me. And that didn't work very well. And so I started working more consciously on integrating this as as part of who I am. Because if you haven't done that, if you haven't done that inner work of integration, then talking about it in front of people scares people. It's like, oh my gosh, this guy is on the edge of falling apart, and we're going to have to take care of him. But wait, he's a teacher or a workshop leader. He's supposed to be taking care of us. And, you know, I feel very deeply about my responsibilities in some of those public roles. But I finally did get to the point where I was able to say to people, I'm all of the above. You know, you've seen my resume, but I'm a lot more than that. (laughs) Everyone is a lot more than their resume. So why don't we just talk turkey with each other? And I found when I do that, especially in retreat and workshop settings, in an honest way, simple, straightforward way, it really liberates other people to talk about the shadow side elements of of 
their own lives because I guess I'm modeling something for them. I'm saying, you know, it's safe here for you to speak because I get it and we've got some ground rules that are going to help everybody get it. So patience, you know, is a good path with a lot of things and certainly with going public with who you are, with more of who you are, I think requires patience. What does it take to get to that place within yourself to be able to integrate that kind of experience, particularly considering that it feels like such a terrible thing, both as an inward experience and as something to be presenting to the outer world? Mm -hmm. That's a great question and a very important one. And my gut response as I heard the question emerging from you was practice, 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 <laughs> <laughs> like, just like anything else. And the specific forms of practice that come to me when I utter that phrase are, first of all, you know, in my case, one of the first moves I made was to seek out a therapist. And I had been raised at a time in an era when even seeking out a therapist was a shameful thing. That must mean you're crazy. Well, depression is a mental illness. <laughs> and so in that sense, I, I was and am crazy. And we need, to, we need to stop being ashamed of saying, I have a mental illness. And so practice, practice, practice happens in part in the privacy of a good therapist's office or a good counselor's office. And one of the things about a good therapist is that they've seen it all. <laughs> and, you, you know, you tell this horrific story about yourself, and you're sure that the floor is going to fall out underneath you. And the therapist is sort of sitting there saying, yeah, what else is new? <laughs> you know, try to, try to shock me because, that, that, you know, you didn't hit the bullseye yet. And, you know, I've, I have felt over the years that the best message I've ever received from people with whom I've shared this, and that is not only a therapist, but you can practice with close and trusted friends. You can practice with trusted family members. The best message I've ever received, whether it's worded this way or not, is the message from the other person who's just heard your horrific story, as you think of it, the message, welcome to the human race. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the message I would like to extend to other people throughout this book and, and throughout other work I've done over the years, is that whatever it is you're struggling with, Welcome to the human race. And that's an important message, not only because it helps people kind of normalize their experience, but because it's, it's the first step towards saving ourselves or towards being saved from the terrible sense of isolation that accompanies some of these, quote, shameful or devastating experiences in life. You know, we are communal creatures. We need one another. And if we feel isolated, as if we were somehow experience something that no one else has ever experienced, and that if we were to let it out, we would be shunned, banned, driven from the village, and so forth, which is how people feel a lot with things like this. And that just doubles down on our pain. So I think a first step toward healing is to realize I'm not alone in this. And here's what interests me so much, Tonio, from the retreat work I've done with folks around issues like this, a room full of 25 people 
under the right circumstances and with good facilitative guidance. They can share problems at this level, and no one has the answer to everyone's problem. But somehow everyone finds a significant piece of the answer in simply knowing that everyone else is struggling with the same thing. You know, one of the things we respond to as communal creatures is, oh, that's true of me, too. You know, I, I don't know, I can't ever get wholly inside your experience, but from what you've said, I can tell you about an experience that has made me feel something like what you may feel at the moment. So it's sort of like the answer, or a significant piece of the answer, is in talking with each other about it and hearing this silent or verbalized message, welcome to the human race. One of the things that I've discovered as I've been getting older is that as I make peace with my own foibles and frailties and dark sides, is that I'm much more able to really accept and love myself, the whole package. And then from that place, I'm able to offer the same kind of love and acceptance to others. Yes. And that, to me, is, is one of the most beautiful experiences that has unfolded in my life, is this experience of falling in love with people as I hear their stories, and that mm-hmm. there's nothing... I mean, I, I grew up in Manhattan, so I was exposed to a lot. So it's very hard to shock me. But even growing up in that environment, I still grew up feeling ashamed of any failures or shortcomings within myself, and it took me decades to really come to terms with all of that and to make peace with it and to integrate that. But what a wonderful thing it is to look at other people, hear their stories, and fall in love with them for all of it, for any of it, and understand right. that they are, they are my brothers, they, they are me, they, they are part of the human race that we share. And I love your line, welcome to the human race. Yes, I I totally identify with what you just said. You know, I think we have two big yearnings in life. One is to feel at home in our own skin, and the other is to feel at home on the face of the earth in this wonderfully, I think, richly diverse world we live in. And you've just described, you know, one of the processes that takes us in that direction. And and what's so interesting to me about the process, Tonio, that you described is that it happens not in spite of our suffering, but because of our suffering, right? Mm-hmm. It's actually the kind of alchemy of the human soul or the human spirit that it turns dross into gold. It turns pain into joy, or at least some kind of deep satisfaction. But as you know, one of the mantras in my new book is, and elsewhere in my writing has been, self-care is never a selfish act. It's always being done on behalf of other people. Because if you don't care for yourself, if you don't love yourself, you can't really love other people. You can't give other people a gift at this level of life that you are unable to give yourself. It's really pretty simple. So people who equate self-love with narcissism Well, in some cases, they have a point, but in a lot of cases, they don't, because what's happening as a person learns to love herself or himself 
is a heart-opening experience of being able to take others in more fully, more compassionately, more forgivingly. Yes, absolutely. And for many of us, that's the hardest step to take. It's the hardest thing to accomplish and integrate into our lives is is that self-love, that self-care, that sense that we deserve to take care of ourselves, mm-hmm. that we're right. worth it. It's very hard. And, you know, I think... I think that it's a special problem for highly educated people. <laughs> I, uh, I sometimes think that, you know, the more highly educated we are, the, the more we have to unlearn, the harder it is to reclaim beginner's mind, because these insights you and I are talking about are really, you know, beginner's mind insights. Of course you can love better if you love yourself, but it becomes very difficult when we've been taught all these distorting messages about self-abnegation and, and so forth and so on, or we've been formed in some kind of narcissistic culture where everything ends up inside as if there were no external world to care about. So, yeah, it's hard work to come to these simple things, but I'm very fond of a saying that I, and I can never, someday I'll have to remember who actually said it. It was either Justice Brandeis or uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes. But the words are, for the simplicity that lies on this side of complexity, I would not give a fig. But for the simplicity that lies on the other side of complexity, I would give my life. And I love that because for most of us, we, we can recognize our own life journey in that statement that at first, we, we cling to simple things on this side of complexity, and they don't serve us well. I think there are a lot of people in this country right now who are doing that politically, and it's very, very dangerous. But we do it personally as well. And then, you know, if you're open to life and you are willing to enter into it rather than be a spectator of it, you have to work your way through a lot of complexity in personal life and professional or vocational work life and in political public life, a lot of complexity. But eventually, if you keep at it, you will break through to the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Um, You know, it's a little like that old Zen saying, you know, before I was enlightened, I chopped wood and carried water, and after I was enlightened, I chopped wood and carried water. Mm -hmm. And, And so you're doing the same thing, but you're doing it with a different sensibility and with a different way of being in the world. It's as if we have to fill up our cup first with everything, including all the garbage, and then once we recognize the contents of our cup and we realize that it's not really working for us, we can empty it out and, or at least examine the contents and fill it up or, or put things in it in a deliberate and conscious way. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun metaphor to play with because I love metaphors and I love language and you do too. So part of what came to mind is maybe we all need a good blender, you know, <laughs> make a smoothie out of the mess of our lives. <laughs> if we knew that at the beginning, it might have made it easier, but I suspect life wasn't designed for shortcuts. <laughs> no, it, it wasn't. And this is why, you know, it's so silly. And I think I talk about this in the book, in the section where I talk about mentoring or being an elder, it's so silly for older adults to say, you know, my task with younger people 
is to help them avoid the mistakes I made when I was young. That's, that's one of the silliest mission statements I've ever heard, and there's a, a lot of silly mission statements floating around. That just doesn't work. You know, we all have to learn the way we all have to learn. Everybody's path is different. It all involves experience. I think my role as a mentor to young people is to ask them a lot of honest, open questions and just let them hear themselves speak about the answers. I'm talking with Parker Palmer, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. never telling them what I think they ought to do, because how should I know? I barely know what I ought to do. (laughs) And yet, the people in my life who have been the question askers, not the judgmental questions, you know, not the questions that have a, a razor's edge to them, but the honest, open questions that invite me to explore my own experience and then to explore what I'm saying about my own experience, that's mentoring, and it's powerfully, powerfully helpful when rightly done. I like to say that we have a strange conceit in our culture that just because we've said something, we understand what it means. <laughs> and we often don't. And when I do retreats with people, I'll say, you know, there's going to be a lot of open, honest questions in this retreat. You're going to be invited to think about them in silence, to journal about them, to, you know, to get in small groups and then back in the large circle to talk about them, if you wish, at your own level of vulnerability, whatever you choose or not. But there's one thing I really want to urge upon you, which is that in most retreats, we sit in the circle taking the most notes on what the leader says. We take the second most notes on what some insightful people in the circle say. And we take the least notes, if any, on what we ourselves say. So in this retreat, I want you to reverse that order. I want you to take the most notes on what you yourself say, because I want you, I invite you to reflect on on that. I think there's a lot to learn from the things we say that we really don't understand the meaning of. I love that you're saying that, because in my style of speaking, often I learn from what I say. Much like the way you describe your writing process, I'll say things, and then I'll listen to them. I'll go, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'll, I'll assess it immediately afterwards, and I'll have conversations with people, and I'll say things, and they'll go, I take that back, or no, I, don't, I, I disagree with myself there. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. I reserve the right to disagree with myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I've gotten into trouble because I'm, I often change my mind about all sorts of things, and I've encountered people who think that's a weakness, that that's a flaw in my character. And I think that, like the way you describe 
valuing people who've experienced deep depression and the deep darkness within themselves. I value you know, people who question themselves and, and are not afraid to change their mind about things. Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting when you get resistance to changing your mind out loud, because I think what it reflects in the other person is a certain kind of fear. If we ask, why is it that a person would say, it's not permitted to change your mind? Um, you know, the answer that comes first to me is that this is a person who wants to cling to beliefs as if there's been a shipwreck and you just grab the nearest piece of flotsam and jetsam and hope you can ride out the nastiness of the ocean without a boat. And I think that, you know, that's not a bad analogy because there is a lot of clinging to simplistic beliefs these days and an unwillingness to consider alternatives. And I'm talking about the right and the left and the middle. You know, I think this is part of the human condition. Lincoln talked about the better angels of our nature. It's not often said that by uttering that very phrase, he suggests there are also lesser angels of our nature. And I think they're flapping around these days pretty loudly, these lesser angels. And one way they manifest themselves is clinging doggedly to beliefs that, that just aren't working and that are leading to disastrous consequences or could eventually lead to disastrous consequences. So I think there is a lot of fear involved in saying to someone, hey, you must be weak-minded if you change your mind. What would it be like if we never changed our mind and we still held <laughs> the same posture in the world as we had when we were five years old? <laughs> there are some grown-ups. Well, they aren't grown-ups. There are some older people even powerful older people that you can look at and say, well, that's exactly who and how they are. They act like five-year-olds. And we, we know that that's not a pretty thing to look at. So there's a, there's a kind of nonsensical quality to this you can't change your mind thing. Where would higher education be? I mean, where would the, the intellectual tradition be if no one could change their mind? One of the things that strikes me most powerfully about Every subject taught in a liberal arts college like Goddard, from which you're broadcasting, is that over time, you know, the conclusions in every discipline have changed for all kinds of reasons, because, you know, we've, new observations have been made and new frameworks of interpretation have been tested to organize and explain those observations. New hypotheses, new theories have emerged. And yesterday's conclusions are not today's conclusions in every field ranging from you know, theology to subatomic physics. Some fields didn't even exist 100 years ago. So everything changes. My Buddhist friends love to remind me everything changes. And, and I say, yeah, everything changes except you telling me everything changes. <laughs> so, so if you'd stop telling me that, you'd help make your own principle come true. <laughs> but I have a, an operating definition of truth, which I think fits in right here. And it goes like this. Truth is an eternal conversation about things that matter, conducted with passion and discipline. And the point of that is that truth can't possibly be in the conclusions of that conversation, 
because those conclusions keep changing. In the process of conversation itself, we are, as somebody once said, truthing when we go about seeking truth. You know, it has to continue to have that active form. That has a powerful implication for higher education, for all forms of education, I think. We're really not doing students a service by simply teaching them the conclusions of the moment and saying, memorize these and go forth as learned people. We do students the best service by teaching them how to hang in with a very complicated conversation and how to be part of that next generation of inquirers who engage in the process called truthing. Part of the reason the conclusions have changed is that new people have joined the circle of inquiry who come from different places in life, who have different life experiences. Women have come into that circle of inquiry much more fully than they were there a hundred years ago. People of color, um, people in the LGBTQ plus community have come into it. And every, every one of these you know, waves of new seekers joining that circle of inquiry, trying to figure things out, has animated our knowledge to go forward and to, to go deeper. So I think there's a lot at stake in this you-can't-change-your-mind stuff and, you know, and still pretend to be a grown-up. Yes, that everything is, is evolving, and like the universe is expanding, so is the perspective of truth or mm -hmm. direct experience of everything. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. So I'm really curious, where did this journey of yours begin? How did you get onto this path? Because I would imagine back when you were first dipping your toes in that water that it was a pretty rarefied field. Yeah. Well, that's, a, again, a, a, a great question. And, and I'm, I'm really not sure of the answer. It's something I wonder about in myself. So what you need to know about me is, first of all, I was an extremely undistinguished student in high school. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I went to a large high school in, in a suburb of Chicago, 2,000 students. So in a graduating class of 500 students, I think I was like number 298 or something in academic ranking. I think school basically bored me. And so I, I was very active in extracurricular activities, president of the student council and all that. But I managed to get into a good college, Carleton College in Minnesota, partly because their admission standards were lower in the day and partly because I had some mentors who promised Carleton College that I had unrealized potential. So I was very lucky in that regard. And I was the first person in my family to go to college. My dad was a blue-collar kid from Iowa who landed in Chicago and took a part-time job during the Depression and then rose in the ranks in that company that sold Tinaware and silverware to restaurants, hotels, and trains and airlines. And, you know, I didn't come from any great intellectual tradition, although I came from a family that was open and curious and respectful of learning but I never imagined myself a scholar, a writer, a public intellectual, or anything of the sort. I think I spent my first semester at Carleton just kind of messing around. And then a professor, who happened to actually be an assistant professor from Hungary, I believe she was, who was still working on her doctorate at the University of Minnesota, invited me to help her with 
a field research project where I suddenly got engaged. You know, I was asked to actually make observations and to collect original data, to interpret them, to try to find out what was going on in a sociological study of the local community, sort of town-gown interaction kind of stuff. And I just got fascinated, and I started, you know, wanting to do well in school so I could do more of that kind of work. And even though I was insecure as a student, I was always the guy, and I have no idea how to explain this, who would go up to the professor after I heard the term paper assignment, and I would say, that's a very interesting assignment, sir, and I'm sure it would be worth doing, but I've got another topic I'd like to pursue. (laughs) Can I talk to you about it? And I'd like to get your approval. And nine times out of ten, it was approved, I think partly because... Professors were glad to find a student who had, you know, an inquiring mind and wasn't just trying to color in the lines. And so I was constantly picking things that would kind of keep the light of learning alive in me. And then I had the great good fortune to meet up with several wonderful, amazing mentors at Carleton. One was the chaplain, one was in Southeast Asian religion, and the other taught physics as well as religion. He had two PhDs, one in each field. And these people were scholars of the first order. The last person I named, the two PhD guy, or the paradox guy, as I like to call him, was a distinguished early leader in the movement to explore the relation between religion and science, or faith and reason. So I got some amazing mentoring. And for me, mentoring is always about seeing more in the young person and the student than that person sees in themselves. And for some reason that I'll never be able to explain, I was blessed with that kind of mentoring until I was in my mid-30s, not just with professors, but with foundation officers and so forth, who were constantly offering me opportunities to do things that I didn't think I could do and to you know, live more fully into a potential that I'd wasn't at all sure I had. One outcome of this, one very practical outcome of this, which it'll sound like a different story, but it's the same story in my mind. When I finished my PhD at Berkeley in 1969, I got offers from some major universities, you know, to sign on to their sociology faculties. But by 1969, the cities were burning, my heroes had been assassinated, you know, war and rumors of war abounded. And I decided that I wanted to use my sociology in the streets rather than in the classroom. So I went to Washington, D.C. I created, with the help of another guy, my own community organizing institute. And I spent the next five years trying to stabilize, with some success working alongside a lot of other people, stabilize a rapidly changing community, demographically changing community. And it was a huge eye-opener for me to not be in a classroom, but to be in a different kind of classroom in a community where a community organizer is both a teacher and an activist. What, you know, what gave me the moxie to try my hand at that when I had not a single course in urban sociology or any training as an organizer, I really have no idea, except that I was also blessed with a father who gave me some sort of basic confidence in life and in myself. 
So that's probably the secret ingredient as to why a, a guy like me, who always felt kind of fraudulent in the academy, um, like, I really don't belong here. And I learned in later years that there's a lot of people in academic life who feel like they really don't belong here. I mean, academic culture tends to be a pretty shaming and guilting culture where, you know, everybody feels like I'm not smart enough to be here. And if they ever found out how dumb I am, they'd throw me out, which is why a lot of masking tends to go on in academic communities, at least in my observation. So that's probably the best answer I can give you as to why I started, you know, kind of walking the edge or the margins or whatever. I found myself more at home on the margins, freer to think what I wanted to think. And as my own writing vocation emerged, which was, I, I started writing in my 20s, uh, mid-20s. I didn't publish anything substantial until I was in my late 30s, just, you know, little pieces in offbeat journals and so forth. I realized, oh, you've made a good decision to not stay inside academia because if you belonged to a sociology department, they would dictate what you have to write in order to advance in, in this institution. But I was free to write what I wanted to write and to write out of my experience of life more than my reading. So my 10 books have ranged over a wide variety of subjects, spirituality, community, politics, social change, leadership, education, and now getting old. <laughs> and that's why I said earlier I finally found a topic that I know something about. But I think somewhere in there is you know, this, this mystery of vocation and of why we do what we do. And I don't think it's a question I'll ever be able fully to answer. And that, frankly, Tony, that kind of makes me happy because I think questions, questions that you can answer get kind of boring. I'd much rather live in that ambiguous space of kind of knowing but I don't know. I love that space, too, because it has infinite range of possibility to keep mm -hmm. expanding and growing. So, again, you mentioned getting older as something that you know something about, but really I thought this book was also much more about looking back upon your life and your work as an educator and social activist and writer with new eyes or perhaps with older, wiser, more inclusive eyes. And that looking back process is such a beautiful thing. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, looking back upon everything you've done and, and all the books that you've written, what do you think of as the most important thing that you've shared or, or to expand it that you could or that you can share with others mm -hmm. that you, that's mm -hmm. most important to you, that you think is most important that you have to offer? Yeah, another great question, and I'll, I'll do my best to answer it. But first let me say that I think the, both the text and the subtext of this book is that is to encourage other older people and younger people to use the opportunity of age to do exactly what you so beautifully described, to look back, to put things together in some new ways, to redeem experiences that, have, that seem irredeemable. Because I see a lot of people my age, again, I'm, I'll be 80 in six months, I see a lot of people my age kind of sinking into despair and filled with regret and so forth and so on. And I really think that there's 
a way to change that mindset, to reframe your life. As I said earlier, the title of Gandhi's autobiography, My Experiments with Truth, to, to reframe your life as a series of experiments with truth, some of which worked out pretty well, some of which didn't, but to understand that all of them belong. So in that sense, what I'm trying to do in the book is to teach that lesson in the only way that I know how, and frankly, the only way that has any credibility for me, which is by doing it on to and for myself in a way that's transparent, honest, open, and I hope might encourage others to do it for themselves. As I say in the, in the prelude, this series of reflections is about my own experience, which is what I know best, but my hope is that it will stimulate the reader to do the same kind of reflecting for him or herself. So in that sense, I, I, I think it's a modeling. I mean, the last, the last book in the world I'm ever going to buy is a book with a title like 12 Surefire Steps Towards Aging Gracefully. <laughs> you know, uh, that, that title right away suggests that this is written from some totally unrealistic mountaintop, and somebody is having the gall or the arrogance to assume that whatever 12 steps worked for them will work for everybody else. And that's just horse hockey. I mean, I know this is public radio, and I don't want to get too edgy here. And if I want to maintain my membership in the Quaker tradition, I need to say horse hockey. We have agricultural roots, so that's acceptable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I think you know that, you know, for me, uh, and I say this in the prelude to the book, there's a lot of gravity about getting old, but levity is a counterforce. And I depend very much on humor, and starting with laughing at myself. As Chesterton said, angels fly because they take themselves lightly. So back to your main question, I'm going to translate it a little bit into this notion of, of the red thread that I think runs through my work, because one of the things that I see now that maybe I didn't see so clearly in earlier years was that through all ten books and through my other work as an activist, as the founder of a nonprofit organization, etc., there is a red thread that runs through a lot of it. And for me, that has to do with trying to reconnect the inner life with the outer life in, in a world that likes to split everything apart, in, in a world that is often highly externalized and objectified. I don't want to deny, you know, the importance of objective knowledge, although I think and the very nature of objective knowledge is often misunderstood, misconstrued as a kind of orthodoxy in higher education. I don't want to deny that at all. What I want to do is to reconnect our inner lives, which is the place where we do a significant amount of living with our outer lives. And the image that has come to me over the years and is very powerful for me is I, I call it life on the Mobius strip. And um, I suspect many of your listeners will know what a Mobius strip is. Hard to describe in words. And, you know, folks can Google it. You can Google anything, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, find out more about it. And but, see an image of it, which will save you the trouble. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> There's all kinds of images of Mobius strips online. M-O-B-I-U-S. That's all you need. 
and um, actually a shape that was, you know, created by mathematicians, as so much is. And it's a shape in which what appears to be the inner side of, let's say, a strip of paper merges into what appears to be the outer side. And as you keep tracing your finger about it, around it, that outer side then merges into what appears to be the inner side, and so it goes. And what's interesting about it is this is, this is a three-dimensional shape, obviously, because we live in three-dimensional space or more, and yet it has only one side. So when I saw the Mobius strip with this constant process of co-creation between the inner and the outer, I thought, that's exactly what life is like. You know, we, we have stuff going on inside of us, everything from joy to anger, from greed to generosity, from confidence to fear. And a lot depends on what we choose to bring forth from us and put into the outer world. So from the inner to the outer, from the inside to the outside of that Mobius strip. Whatever I put out there helps shape the reality in which I live, and if I'm connected with you in some way, it helps shape the reality in which you live. So a good example for me as a classroom teacher is that if, if I walk into a classroom afraid of the students who are there, afraid of their judgment of me as an older man over the hill, out of it, blah, 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 um, then I... I put that fear into the external environment, and my students come back with fears of their own, or they sense a vulnerability in me that they want to exploit, or something along those lines. But if I put confidence out there, if I put out there the belief that they're here to learn something, most of them, that doesn't have to be 100% true for this to work, I am more likely to get more positive feedback from my students who now feel that they're in the presence of somebody who would really like to teach them, and that sort of triggers their desire to really want to engage in, in learning. But whatever I put out there then comes back to me inwardly. The world throws stuff back at me, and I have choices to make about how to process that, how to hold that. Is it going to make me angry and more fearful? Or is it going to be reframed in some of the ways we were talking about earlier from, you know, from disaster or, or decline into a sense of possibility? And so in life on the Mobius Strip, as I travel the Mobius Strip, I'm constantly co-creating the world and myself. And that's just the way it is, whether we like it or not, know it or not. What's important, I think, once you have this image in mind, and this is a consciousness I try to carry with me, is that I ask myself the question at every point of exchange on the Mobius Strip, from inner to outer or from outer to inner, how can I be so highly conscious of the choices that I have to make at these points of exchange or co-creation that I can make on balance choices that are more life-giving than death-dealing? for myself and for other people. Another way to put it would be, how can I create self-fulfilling prophecies that work for me and for others instead of those that bring me and others down? I can give you a very immediate example from this very conversation. 
you and I early on were both struggling with some technological difficulties with some of the new equipment you're using. And we were both saying, and we were joining in this, whatever they may be, we're going to make this work. <laughs> you know, we'll work our way through it, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than saying, oh, man, let's do this another day when you've got all of that sorted out. Those are choices. And I think if you bear this consciousness of what self-fulfilling prophecy do you want to create, you're more likely to get the best possible outcome rather than the worst. And the truth is that with your help, I think, dialing down the volume, on my end, a lot of the technological issues have been resolved. I'm not hearing so much echo of my own voice anymore. So, you know, it's happening all the time in as homely a situation as you and I talking together on public radio. So I'm so glad, and I love the way you said all of that. It's being in direct relationship with that, because there is no separation between the inner and outer. I mean, that, that's an arbitrary line that we have, we've actually very solidly drawn in the sand in our culture. Right. But things are not as they appear from our highly colonized perspectives, which are very hard to see through. I mean, it takes, exactly. it takes a lifetime to unlearn all the crap that we've learned throughout our lives. Yeah, yeah. Paul Simon said it in one of his songs, when I think back on all the crap I learned in high school, it's a wonder I can think at all. <laughs> you know, I love that song. Yeah, yeah. Um, I absolutely love it. But, you know, I think you just, you just said that beautifully. And if we think about it for a moment, the inner and the outer are a distinction without a difference. And then the question becomes, why do we cling to the distinction? And I think, I think we cling to it because we have this burning desire to make everything simpler, even if it falsifies reality. So if, if we can imagine that these inner dynamics of people's lives don't matter, or we can just ignore them, or we can leave them up to the therapist or the family or the priest or the pastor or whoever, all the educated people have to care about is what's going on in the external objective object world, teach people how to manipulate that world toward our own ends. That kind of makes life simpler. It removes half of a very complicated equation. And it moves back to this drive for simplicity that we were talking about earlier. On this side of the complexity, as on opposed... On this side of the complexity. Right. Yeah, it's not on the other side at all. Mm-hmm. The Mobius strip is a great model of a, of, a, of a simple image on the other side of complexity. Because, right, you can hold it in your hand and trace it around and say, that's how my life works. That's how everybody's life works. So I think what I'm saying is that the red thread running through my work has been, and I guess the gift I'd like to offer ultimately on this level of life, is this constantly writing in different contexts about the relation of the inner and the outer. And the book I'd point to at the moment as a handy example is the last book I did, published in 2011, called Healing the Heart of Democracy. And it's a book that begins with a wonderful quote from Terry Tempest Williams, who says, the human heart is the first home of democracy. And it goes on to say in very eloquent language, which I do not have memorized, that the heart is where we hammer out the hard questions. You know, can we live not only for ourselves, but for one another? You know, can we share? Can we get things done together? Do we understand we're all in this together? And the answers we come up with inwardly are the answers we then manifest outwardly. 
Well, there is no political science textbook that begins with the human heart. <laughs> For political science, the first home of democracy is the words and actions of the founders, or the documents they created, or the places where they created them. You know, it's in that object world of people, documents, institutions, and events. And obviously, all of that is important, and we need to know it, and we need to understand it. But we also need to understand the inner driver that was related not only to all of that history, but that is related to our own role as participants in this democracy. You're talking about the spirit of it as opposed to the letter of it. Yeah, yeah. Which is where the heart comes from. Yeah, absolutely right. I've always, I've been fascinated over the years by the fact that the word heart comes from a Latin root, cor, C-O-R, which when you dive into it deeply, you begin to understand is related to the core, C-O-R-E, of the human self. So in classic terms, the heart is not simply the seat of the emotions as we would have it today, you know, the sort of Valentine symbol. The heart is that center place, that core of the human self, where all of our faculties converge. Not only emotions, but intuition, will, intellect, bodily knowledge, relational knowledge, problem-solving knowledge. And when a person is fully educated in the sense of, you know, having access to that rich interactive mix of modes of knowing, you know, then amazing things start to happen in that person's understanding of self and world and in that person's way of being in the world. I'm talking with Parker Palmer, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. It's one of our three brains that actually is the only part of us that can mediate the other two brains. Yes, yes, exactly. Another image that I'll never forget was given by the late Candace Pert, who was a great neurobiologist. And I heard her say in an interview with Bill Moyers, she said, the brain may be located in the cranium, you know, the top inch or two of the human body but the mind is located throughout the body. And that's that integrative sense of mind that you're talking about. And as you said, everything begins from that place. Otherwise, we're disembodied, we're lost in our heads, or we're lost in our guts. Yeah, absolutely. And to be lost in your head or lost in your gut is a sad fate. In the old days, they would say you're not operating on all four cylinders. And there's a lot of that going around. So it's a very limiting form of knowledge when we operate either from the top of the tower or from the more visceral basement. 
But all of that is important. The point is to connect it up and be the whole selves that we were meant to be. I love a quote from a Russian Orthodox theologian whose date I can never remember. It was probably 14th century or so, but he said, we must learn to think with the mind descended into the heart. And while that doesn't cover everything, it does have this wonderful suggestion that we need to stop thinking from the top of the tower, where we are separated from everyone, as you were just saying, and start thinking from that core place where we are connected with everyone. So I like the way you phrased it very much. I'm wondering, since we're probably near the end of this, if we should head on to the brink of everything. Okay. And what that line means and where where that line came from. Well, as I say in the book, and I'll tell the story as briefly as I can, first let me say where it came from and then let me say what it means to me. I have a, a colleague, uh, a fellow writer at On Being and a person I've worked with in other contexts named Courtney Martin. Courtney is now in her maybe late 30s. I met her when she was in her mid-20s. And I immediately recognized her as a really brilliant writer, culture critic. She started a website or an online journal called Feministing and published some some really wonderful cutting-edge feminist work. And, you know, she started calling me a mentor, and and I said, well, back at you because you're mentoring me as well. You're teaching me what things look like from your generation's point of view, and I need to know that. Most elders need to know that. So in our roles as on-being columnists, weekly columnists for on-being, we were always, we were reading each other's stuff, and one fine morning I got up to read this beautiful essay that Courtney had written, had published, about watching her 18-month-old daughter, Maya, discover the world. So here's this toddler who's wide-eyed with amazement at, at everything. You know, everything is fresh, everything is new, everything is beginner's mind, and encountering life for the first time. And Courtney, as a close observer of everything, is watching this happen and being kind of blown away by it. And early in this article, she has this line, Maya is on the brink of everything. Well, when I was reading that, I think I was maybe... 76, a few years ago, and it was five in the morning, and I had paused on this winter morning in Madison, Wisconsin, where I live, to look out a second-story window in my house at a beautiful sunrise that was coming through an ice-glazed window, and, you know, looking kind of like a rose window at Chart, and I, I just took, you know five minutes probably to just stare at this scene, which in earlier years would have been very uncharacteristic for me because I would have been so eager to boot up the computer and get to work. Then I went downstairs, brewed some coffee, read Courtney's essay on my iPhone, and as I read it, I thought, at my age, I too am on the brink of everything, just like this 18-month-old child. And I'm seeing through fresh eyes. And I need to explore that. So the next week I wrote an essay for On Being called On the Brink of Everything. 
and it got a wonderful response on being as a very thoughtful audience. And that was the beginning of an inspiration to, to start writing more around this topic of how does life look at age 76, 77, 78, 79? And, and then, of course, I called Courtney and I said, can I steal your, your line to use as a title in the book? And she said, of course, a very generous person. And I, I very much urge people to look up Courtney Martin and her books, um, the most recent two, are The New Better Off, which is about this generation of young people who won't be monetarily better off than their parents, but her argument is they can be better off in other ways if you reframe that. And the book before that that I admire so much is called Do It Anyway, which is about, I believe it's seven case studies of seven young activists who have had the courage to go ahead and take on tasks that they know to be impossible in the long run, so they do it anyway, even though they, and, and they don't expect, you know, results in their lifetimes, but they keep at it faithfully. So Courtney Martin is someone really worth knowing about. So anyway, I started writing under that under that sort of general rubric, and a lot of great things came forward, not only about me, but, you know, finding my own political voice in these strange and disturbing times. And Eventually, my editor suggested that these might be pulled together in a book. So that's that's the brief story of the origins of the title. For me, being on the brink means, first of all, to be in a place where you can observe a lot that you can't see from farther down the mountainside, farther down the hill in the valley, and uh, or, or an edged place where you can see a lot more than you can when you're at the center of life, which was an observation that Kurt Vonnegut was fond of making, and it's in a couple of his novels. You can see more from the edge than you can from the center, because he's always writing about people who are on the edge one way or another. And so it has that meaning. And then, of course, as time goes on, it evokes images of going over the brink, and over the brink, of course, would be the whole process of dying and finally being dead. And the mystery that surrounds that, the fear that often surrounds that, the ways that I find, at least, that I need, that, to quote St. Benedict, if I keep death daily before my eyes, it actually is not a morbid practice. It actually enhances my appreciation of life it's more likely to get me stopping at that second-floor window on a winter morning and appreciating the way the sun rise is creating a rose window through the glaze of ice on the window out of which I'm looking. And, you know, I have a section at the end of the book called Where We Go When We Die, and, and my publisher said, so everybody's going to be asking what's the answer to that. And I said, well, I'm not, I'm not telling. That's my sales hook. I want people to read the book to get the answer. But I'm glad to talk with you about it, Tony, <laughs> if you want me to. Feel free to talk about or say anything you want about it. Okay. Uh, and, you know, we, we'll hope that, that people won't be so disappointed that they won't, that they won't pick up the book at all. So here's what I say about that. First of all, I am not privy to reports from the other side. So I have no data 
to, to bring forward. I only have hunches. But I think my hunches are reasonably well-grounded, and I have two of them. And the first one builds on the fact that I have no bad memories of where I came from when I was born, and so I see no reason to have bad anticipations about where I go when I die. I am operating on the assumption that I'm that I came from a mystery and I'm returning to a mystery. And beyond that, there's not a lot I can say about it, except that apparently it wasn't a terrible, terrible place. <laughs> apparently it was a place that, you know, made me reasonably happy, maybe even happier than 18 years after I was born and I was a teenager with a lot of vexations. So... I figure I'm, I'm going back to that mystery, and that's just fine with me. I find that reassuring. The second thing I know for sure is that when I die, the atoms that make up my body will mingle with the atoms that make up the Earth, which are, of course, the same atoms that make up and came from and returned to those distant stars. It just keeps recirculating. And that, too, is just fine with me. And there I have a little more experiential evidence because ultimately the natural world is a place where I seek solace, comfort, peace, and some sort of reclaiming of groundedness. There's a couple of things I do every year, if possible, as long as I have health and the means to do it. One is I go mountain hiking in New Mexico in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains outside of Santa Fe. I don't do, you know, vigorous stuff, but I love being in that environment as my own version of a return to nature where I find all of the things I just named. And the second thing is that I, I go to the boundary waters of northern Minnesota, which is a million acres of pristine wilderness along the Minnesota-Ontario border where no motors are allowed and as a friend of mine once said, everywhere you look, there's a perfect Japanese garden. I, I love that description of the boundary waters. And I go there with my wife every August, early September, for as long as we can stay, if several weeks when it's possible. And there again, I find this in the simplest of environments where all there is, like, like a Japanese garden, is rock, water, trees, and sky. I just find this, this sort of peace that passes all understanding. And whatever else has been going on in my life just kind of comes into perspective, just as it does in the high desert of New Mexico. So if I go there, if I go to nature in life to seek that kind of respite, why wouldn't I find it when my atoms mingle with all that stuff? So in the book, because the Boundary Waters is my very favorite place, I actually give the latitude and longitude of heaven, just so people can find it if they, if they want to if they want to visit and get a little preview of what it looks like in the Boundary Waters canoe area, northern Minnesota. So that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. And you have another line about that: that we we begin in mystery and will return to mystery, and that's about as much as we can be sure about. Yeah, I, th I think so, and I think that's why, you know, to loop back to a previous part of our conversation, Antonio, is 
I think that's why it's really important to get past this habit of seeking simple answers, or really sometimes seeking answers at all. The poet Rilke has this wonderful line that many people know, or this wonderful passage about living the questions. He says there are some questions you just can't get answers to. They're too big and too important. And so the trick is to wrap your life around those questions, live into them, and he says some distant day without knowing it, you may find that you've lived your way into an answer. So these are all different ways of talking about mystery. And I like these ways of talking about mystery because I don't find them mystifying. It's not like they're messing with my mind. I like Rilke's statement very much because in my own life, I know what it is to live the questions and the importance of choosing the right questions to live into. And at my stage in life, you know, the living in toward the mystery of death is an important one. And I make, you know, as I say in the book, I make no predictions about what's going to happen when I go over the brink. I think I say something like, will I drop like a rock? Will I go down like a screaming banshee? Or will I flap my wings and fly? I have no earthly idea. <laughs> I'm making no predictions. But the things that I just mentioned about embracing the mystery and being comfortable with mystery, those are habits you can develop over a lifetime that I think serve you well in your elder years. And to be able to accept life as an abiding mystery. Yeah, it, and it truly is. I mean, we can start with the fact that we are mysteries to ourselves <laughs> <laughs> and, and go out from there, right? Mm-hmm. And it seems as though the more we learn, the more we think we know about things, the more we realize that there's so much more. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the most important thing that a lot of us find is as we learn more and more, is learning how little we know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's a wonderful, it's a wonderful uh, foundation to be on. It is. It's like a foundation yep. of no foundation. Yep. I totally agree. And because, loving it. Yeah, and, love, and, and loving it, and, and you're not regretting it or bemoaning it or, you know, falling for the nearest nostrum or snake oil salesman who says, have I got, you know, have I got the deal for you? I got the answers right here in this book or this bottle, the 12 steps, to whatever. <laughs> the hottest new simplicity on this side of the complexity. Yeah, exactly. The, the fad du jour. Mm-hmm. And as long as human beings are afraid of the unknown, they'll be creating new ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's ex I think that's exactly right, and, and including new problems, <laughs> that fear <laughs> right. of the unknown, yeah. Well, I was wondering if you'd like to read a poem. Uh, sure, I'll give it a try. There's a few that I think apply to the end, um, there's waving goodbye from afar. Mm -hmm. There's the death of Fred Clifton. Mm -hmm. And then there's the two toasts. Yeah. Let me, um, let me start with waving goodbye from afar, okay? Okay. That's a poem that I wrote. The book has some of my own poetry in it and some poetry from others. I've never published my poetry before, so this is a poem that I wrote following the 
sequential deaths of four friends of mine, Angie, Ian, Vincent, and John, and it's called Waving Goodbye from Afar. One by one, their names have been exhaled in recent weeks, fading into thin air on their final breath. Angie, Ian, Vincent, John. I talked, laughed, and worked with them. We cared about each other. Now they are gone. No, they do not live on. Just watch the world keep turning in their absence, a tribute here and there, depending on the fame of the fast-fading name. I've always thought it would be good if a few who loved me sat with me as I died. Now, as I learned of friends who've taken sudden leave, I'm glad all I can do is wave goodbye from afar, knowing they can't see me. It feels right to offer them an unseen final salute, seeking no attention, unable to distract them from a journey each of us must make alone. It must be a breathless climb, the kind I've made many times in the mountains of New Mexico. The last thing I wanted there was someone who just had to talk. When it was all I could do to climb, to breathe, then stop, marveling at the view, wondering what's up top. There's so much in that. Yeah, there, thank you. There, there certainly is for me, because those deaths, which I... These are people who live in far-flung places in this country. Some of the deaths were sudden, surprising, too young, etc. And there was no way for me to accompany them personally at the end. And I felt bad about that for a while and then started reflecting one day on the kind of hidden gift that's in that. And it's what I tried to express in the poem. It, it is, you know, one thing we know about death is that it's, it's a solitary journey, even if there's someone with you, even if you're surrounded on your deathbed by people who loved you. I hope you're not surrounded by people who are connecting <laughs> wires and tubes to you. Mm -hmm. um, that's not what I'd want anyway. No. Um, but even if other people who love you are there, you have to do that alone. And I've always felt that that's one of the reasons practicing solitude is important in life. That, again, is practice of dying. I think it's also really important for people to prepare for being with other people when they're dying Yeah. to practice solitude and allowing the space for solitude in the presence of somebody else and their solitude to allow them to leave without the tyranny of our own trips. Yes, and, well said. Well said, that because to leave without interruption is precisely to be able to leave without the tyranny of other people's agendas, you know, who are sitting there trying to prove that they're good caretakers. Or people who are unwilling to let go. Yeah, people who are afraid of, of the death in you because they're afraid of it in themselves. And mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right. I've, I've had the experience of sitting in silence at the deathbed of a dying person, and it's a very powerful experience. And I, I believe that in that,
process as you accompany someone that, that in that silent witnessing way that something is transmitted you know we transmit stuff to each other at levels that we can barely name but i believe that something is transmitted that has to do with your confidence that the other person can make this trip by themselves and you don't need to be the booster the cheerleader the resistor the you know come on back person but you can be the silent encourager of them just as my mentors have been for me in life you know when i i mentioned in, earlier in the interview my great mentors and you know there were lots of times when they when their basic message to me was a silent message just go ahead and do it and see what happens we know you can i've been thinking about death a fair amount in the last several years and i've never really been terribly hung up on death and i'm very grateful for that and one of my senses about it is that we're not really going anywhere so it's not like they can make the trip on their own so much as they'll be okay you know yeah. in, in whatever way shape or form or or lack of form that death is not this terrible thing for them mm-hmm. it tends to be much more challenging for those who are left behind. Totally agree. I totally agree. Because because we've lost somebody precious to us, perhaps, and that's obviously hard. But I think the death of another person ultimately sort of reminds us of our own mortality. And for some people who haven't embraced that reality, that makes someone else's death very hard indeed. Mm-hmm. And we... We make such a beautiful thing out of birth. Mm -hmm. I don't see why we can't make something equally magical out of the rite and passage of death. Right. Absolutely. You know, that takes me back to this notion that I don't have bad memories of where I came from. Why should I have bad anticipations about where I'm going? I figure it's more or less the same place. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm just leaving with more consciousness that I came in with. Right. Though whether we can take any of it with us is, is a whole other thing. Right. <laughs> they, they say you can't. We'll see. Right, right. <laughs> I have no, uh, no stake in that argument. <laughs> right. Me, me either. That's a good thing. We yes. We can just listen, listen to it go on. <laughs> yeah. So I, I um, unfortunately, I'm going to have to get on my way pretty soon here, and I I just want to say how very much I've enjoyed this time with you. I look forward to the day when we might um, meet face-to-face and have more conversation. Yes, I would love that, and I want to thank you so much. I've enjoyed this conversation very much. Thank you, Tony. I really appreciate that, and all good wishes with your good work. Thank you, and best wishes with your work and your ongoing writing and your work with young people. Thank you. Thank you, Tonio. Well, the whole thing is a trip, and it's a great trip. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. (laughs) Be well, and thank you again. Thanks. Take good care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Parker Palmer. He's a teacher, social activist, community organizer, 
and author of numerous books, including Healing the Heart of Democracy, To Know As We Are Known, and he has a new book that just came out titled On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and Getting Old, 